Hello and welcome to the sixth bonus episode of the Cinescope Podcast. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and returning to the show after last appearing back in episode 20 is Joshua Torrey to talk about the latest addition to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Joshua, how are you doing tonight? Doing excellent. Very excited. Me too. And let's reintroduce you. What? Who are you? What do you do? Um, you were last on, like I said, in episode 20, and you talked about White Christmas with me. So it'll be nice to explore a non-holiday movie. How about you tell us about yourself? Yeah, I am a computer engineer, a father of four children now at this point. Um, since White Christmas, I've added one more to the flock. Congratulations. Thank you. And run a, a website that tries to deal with theology, art, and literature, mostly music. I mean, I love movies, absolutely love dissecting movies, but it's not something I, I've added to my, my slate yet, full-time anyway. Cool. I think I think you're one of the two other Agents of Shield fans out there in the world. <laughs> with my me. wife and I love that show. Oh, good. I, Three then. <laughs> it, it, I, I'm really enjoying it. It's a uh, extension of the MCU. I just watched last week's episode last night, and this this season in particular, I think, has been the standout in a long time. Yeah, I mean, I I really felt like they didn't have anywhere to go, and they were kind of running through some some muddy spots, but there have been portions of this season that I was it's like, Oh, this is, this is highlight of the Marvel universe across any, any uh, medium or sphere. Definitely. And uh, as much as I'd love to talk more agents of shield, maybe we'll do a bonus episode on that sometime, but let's go ahead yeah. and talk about this new movie. So guardians of the galaxy two just came out. It released on May 5th of 2017 and was directed again by James Gunn, who directed Slither, Super, and the first Guardians of the Galaxy. It was written by James Gunn, and the music is by returning composer Tyler Bates, who also composed the scores for Get Carter, Zack Snyder's films Dawn of the Dead, 300, Watchmen, and Sucker Punch, and James Gunn's films Slither, Super, and Guardians of the Galaxy as well as work on John Wick 1 and 2, and most recently The Belko Experiment, and the upcoming Charlize Theron movie, Atomic Blonde. The movie stars Chris Pratt, Zoe Saldana, Dave Bautista, Bradley Cooper, Vin Diesel, Michael Rooker, Karen Gillan, Palm Clementif, Elizabeth Debicki, Chris Sullivan, Kurt Russell, Sean Gunn, and Sylvester Stallone. So, as always with these bonus episodes where we talk about new movies, we start spoiler-free. So, just uh, no spoilers. We'll ring the spoiler bell when it comes. But what was your opinion of this movie? Do you think it's a worthy follow-up to Volume 1? I think it's absolutely, completely a a worthy follow-up to the first film. I wouldn't place it above the first film because... no one was expecting the the hit that it was and there were huge expectations for this film but i think it was absolutely a worthy follow-up i agree i also think that it sits slightly at least slightly below volume one and i think part of that is because volume one was such a surprise to everybody nobody expected what we got from guardians one that is such a funny movie it's filled with heart and Largely, this one is the same in regards to those aspects. It, it There's lots to laugh at. There's lots of things to identify with and to take away from. But I just don't think it reached the, the, the same heights that the first Guardians film did, at least not for me. There, there's plenty of great laughs. The, the story direction is actually sort of somewhat 
unexpected without going into details now we'll get there later but i think they they took a good path that was different than what they do for most marvel movies in this movie yeah i'm i watch every single marvel movie on opening night i get as many family members to go as possible i couldn't get anybody to go watch guardians of the galaxy one whether it was because of the trailers or just the sense of humor um there wasn't a lot of interest and so the existential experience of it being something no one wanted to watch and everyone loving it. That's just, that's very difficult to duplicate. Everyone had such an amazing first experience to that, that first movie that whether it's worthy of it or not in terms of its artistic expression, it just hit all the right notes. The, the story, the humor, the, the pacing, um, Chris Pratt was amazing. Groot's, it, everything just came together perfectly in that first movie. And it's hard to duplicate that with any kind of real expectation. Um, but this second volume is a really good effort to, to match it. And because the soundtrack was such a big part of the first film, we've got another awesome mix for this movie. Do you think that that is sort of on the same level or any opinions on how it compares? I think it, I think it again kind of falls just slightly just slightly below. I mean, the soundtrack in my opinion is really, really quite good, but now you're kind of expecting those perfect soundtrack moments in the movie because it's not just about the songs and how they exist in our, our experience of them, but um, the way they play in the timing of the movie and how they, in the first one, you didn't quite expect for the songs themselves and the content of those songs to be humorous or to drive the plot because they played such a huge role. Um, and in this volume, you definitely did expect that. And it lived up to it, but because you were expecting it, it didn't quite have the, the same shock. Um, so I thought, it was, I thought it was great. Some very excellent music choices definitely served well in continuation of the first film, but it, it didn't have that same shock and wow factor as the first film. It certainly doesn't have the same sort of hook as Hooked on a Feeling did for the first film, even though they used it in a lot of the promotional material for volume two. I guess that is a very mild spoiler. Hooked on a Feeling is not in this movie, but I think that the the songs that they did go with hit the same sort of vibe. They're, they're all from the same era and, um, I think the only thing that sort of fell short for me was maybe just lack of familiarity, honestly. And so we'll dive more into that later. Bottom line is the movie, the music, the the humor, the all of that kind of stuff, I think is very close to being on par with the first film. And uh, how does it stand on its own? Like if, if you brought somebody in who hasn't seen the first film and just watched this movie, I think that it does stand on its own pretty well. I think that it is a well-made film that doesn't necessarily follow some of the tropes that the previous Marvel films have. Yeah. I think if anything, it's guilty of not following the Marvel floor plan that everyone complains about and everyone complains about each Marvel movie, uh, feeling the same. And this one does its own thing. And you have people complaining about the fact that it did its own thing, but that own thing that it does makes it a movie that I think is standalone worthy of watching. They did a really good job of not trying to trade off of old jokes. I know people are going to think, oh, they were just trying to replicate things. I don't think they did. They didn't, they didn't trade off of old um, storylines. They didn't bring back any inside jokes. I think it stands alone on its own. 
wonderfully as just a fun pre-summer movie. Right. This this movie doesn't necessarily feel like an inside joke that you'd only get if you saw the first one. I think, again, everything just does, so, does sort of stand on its own. And because it's different from the Marvel formula of the past, it it makes a very good effort of being something very different for Marvel. And I think that James Gunn and company have done a great job of, again, of just bringing something new, um, even something different from volume one. So bottom line, I guess, do you think people should see this in theaters? Absolutely. Yeah, I think we're both agreed on that. Yeah. I didn't get to see it with my wife. I want to take one of my children who's five years old to go see it um, because I think she could see it. So I'd love to take her and I'd also love to take my wife. So I'll be going to the theaters at least one more time to see it and potentially two more times. So I would be a hypocrite if I didn't say that people should go see it in the theater. The The CGI is good. Um, seeing it in a crowd of people so that you all get the humor at the same time and laugh together. It, it's an experience that is worth having. I definitely agree. A movie like this that does have such a high entertainment value, laughs, drama, special effects, music, it, it really does benefit from a theater experience and i will probably at least try to see it once more as well if for no other reason than so i can further evaluate it right uh it's going to be a while before i get to watch it at home so might as well go watch it again in the theaters where it's intended to be watched in the first place and hopefully take away even more and further develop my opinion on the movie well and especially with movies like this the sometimes the laughing in the movie theater can cause you to miss things and so I'd love to go see it again and maybe catch some new stuff. Specifically, Guardians, um, Avengers has had this as well. There, there are sometimes just sentences, phrases, or just kind of these offhand dry comments that people miss because they're laughing that are downright hilarious. And so I, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing it again and catching a couple more of those. Me too. That, and that's a good point. I think with that, we're done with our spoiler-free section. So now, if you haven't watched the movie yet, we are going deep into it. We're going to definitely spoil a lot of things. So if you have been warned, if you don't want to be spoiled, pause it, go watch the movie, come back later. Joshua, just starting off, we talked about this a little bit. We don't have to go too much further in depth. But what was your overall thoughts on the first movie? And how did that really drive your expectation for this one? Um. So my my experience with the first movie was just, I'm going to go see it because I'm a diehard and walking out of the theater going, Oh my goodness, this was a really great movie. And I think a lot, at least in my circle, the, the, the sphere of people I was dealing with, they were not excited to see it. And I came in as a hardcore defender of this is a really good movie. Trust me, you need to go see this. And I probably convinced you know, 10 to 20 people to go see this movie who had no desire to watch it. So coming into Guardians 2, I was less than overwhelmed with the trailers. I I didn't have that same kind of feeling. Um, It looked good. It looked like it could be a, a standard Marvel film. I'm not really sure why the trailers didn't hook me, but it, it didn't work. I think it's just hard to capture lightning in a bottle twice. I mean, I've already said I loved the first film. It's so funny. It it is surprisingly heartfelt. And the soundtrack is great. It's classic at this point. It's only been out for three years. And that is a classic soundtrack. 
there are songs that people associate with Guardians of the Galaxy now, despite them having been released 40, 50 years previous. Yeah. Which is insane. And it, it just is a sign of how deeply the first Guardians film sort of permeated the culture. And watching promo material for this movie, I really avoided it as much as I could. It's sort of just my general philosophy. I'll watch maybe the first trailer a movie releases, and then I try to avoid it from there. And so the only thing I really watched trailer-wise for this movie was the original Groot and Rocket button teaser. Mm-hmm. That, that scene that's just straight up from the movie towards the end. And I thought that was funny, but it also had me sort of worried that they might go in a sort of despicable me direction with this and make baby Groot the Marvel minion, right? Where where he's just all over the place, despite how adorable he may be, there can be too much of a good thing. And so I was slightly worried about that. I, I even avoided the soundtrack song list just because of how classic the first film's soundtrack was. I, I just really wanted to be surprised by it in the film itself. And so I, I, I was setting this up. I knew I was going to see it no matter what. I didn't think it was going to be as good. And in a way, I was right based on just my my personal first viewing experience. But I also think it was a lot better than I expected it to be, too. Yeah, I, I didn't listen to the soundtrack much like you. I didn't. I just wanted to kind of enjoy the introduction of those songs during the movie. Uh, my brother-in-law did download i think actually purchased the soundtrack and knew what songs were coming i didn't watch any of the scene material you know how that kind of shows up on the internet about a week before they slowly start releasing these 45 second clips and scenes i didn't watch any of that it was just the the base teaser trailer and some of the promotional trailers that came after that so i didn't feel like i really knew what the story was um, and I think that's one of the great things about the movie. If you didn't see scenes, the trailers don't give away kind of the feel and the the pacing of the movie at all. There are these humongous first and and final climactic scenes that that the tr- trailers kind of trade off of. But there's a lot of stuff in the middle that that goes really untouched that is makes the movie um, special. Maybe people will dislike it because it's special, but um, make the movie special and unique from the first one. Let's go ahead and talk about story a little bit more. So I purposefully didn't watch the first Guardians film before talking about this with you. I was going to watch it earlier today just so I had that comparison, but I really just wanted to serve on memory alone. Like, what what are my feelings? What are my memories of the first Guardians film? And how does this recent fresh viewing of Guardians 2 compare? And in aspects of humor just just focusing on the humor of it because guardians one is a very funny movie i really do think that volume two has humor that at least at least matches volume one i can't think of any jokes that really fell flat on me maybe the jumping between uh the the different portals as yondu and rocket were making their way to ego's planet maybe that was the one sort of slapstick ish kind of thing that didn't make me laugh it was a little silly at first, but then it just sort of wore on. But other than that, I think that every joke they gave every time Baby Groot was on screen, Drax has some really funny moments. I was laughing a whole lot during this movie. Oh, absolutely. I was I was laughing the entire time. So I, I might be in the minority who thinks Drax as a character is really 
incredibly hard to make funny. Um, that just the the risk reward factor is is high for him. And there were a couple of his scenes that I felt were a little forced. Um, but then when did they nail it? Like when when Drax delivers the comedic relief for a scene, it, it's just hilarious. It's out of this world funny. And Guardians 2 has that. You're not going to be surprised. You're expecting it this time around. But it's still really intelligent humor. And I think this movie in particular trades less off of Chris Pratt's general humor um, you know, he's got a background with a lot of humor. It doesn't revolve around him quite as much as Guardians 1 did. And I think that's to the benefit of the movie that it really disperses the the perspective um, of the humor aspect across the field. Groot is infinitely more funny in this film than he was in the first one. And that's a good thing. Yeah, Baby Groot was probably still my favorite part. I don't think he was overdone at all. He has like these three major scenes. The first one is a very beginning scene while everybody else is fighting this giant tentacled monster to Mr. Blue Sky by Electric Light Orchestra. And <laughs> and Groot is just dancing around the stage, trying to stay out of trouble, having a good time. And then there's the other one where he has to seek out Yondu's fin that is elsewhere on the ship. And he just keeps bringing back the wrong stuff. And then at the end, he is the one who delivers the bomb to the core of Ego's planet. And those are like his really three big scenes. He's interspersed here and there throughout, but I don't think he's layered on too thick. And I laughed every single time he was on screen. He is so funny, which is a neat turn because you're right. Chris Pratt's character doesn't have a whole lot of humor this time around at all. He has a couple of his Chris Pratt one-liners because I think it's in his contract that he has to, right? But aside from that, this is really about an emotional arc for Peter. And that's what Groot was for at the end of the first Guardians film was he was that emotional factor. And so now that he's had his moment at the end of the first Guardians film and this one, he's a comedic relief while Peter has the chance to have the more dramatic turn. And you're right, Drax, it was my other favorite part. The the comedy mostly comes from Drax and Groot in this movie. Yeah, Groot's little scene where he's looking for Yondu's fin had me like side achingly laughing. It was <laughs> it was pretty phenomenal. And then you have a couple scenes from Rocket where I could see some people thinking they're forced. I I think it's just a humor respect thing if you if you think it's funny the scene is funny if you don't think it's funny the scene is too long but i thought rocket's humor element also greatly enforced the, the whole winking thing and winking with the wrong guy oh, that was that was good i forgot about that yeah it, it was and, and it's not a one-time joke it, it, they use it a couple times without overusing it it kind of like ties you into the idea that this is an ongoing thing that he just he doesn't wink with the right eye and it just kind of makes him endearing. He's a he's a raccoon that fires guns all over the place. There's not much to attach to in terms of his um, personality, but they brought a level of humor to him that that really brought him in for people to enjoy the dramatic elements of his story, which you you know you might not think that they're were dramatic elements left for these characters, but it, it felt like a lot of them had strong dramatic elements this time around. Yeah. What about the drama? So like I said, 
the the ending of the first Guardians film where Groot sacrifices himself to save everybody else from the crashing ship. That like that has drawn more than a single tear for me. <laughs> that that gets me every time I watch that the the whole we are Groot thing. That is beautiful. It's a gorgeous moment in the film, and it affects me a lot emotionally. Are there any moments or aspects of the storyline in Volume Two that get you like that? I'm not sure that anything matches the the we are Groot scene or even Drax's super silly, you know, firing the the gun on um, Gamora's sister. It, oh, Nebula. Yeah, Nebula. When he fires the gun on Nebula and says that no one's gonna, you know talk trash to his friends like those kind of moments that are both silly and honestly dramatic i'm not sure that there was anything that really came to that same level in in the second one rocket has some really good moments and then you've got we've given the spoiler alert so the spoiler alert is there young sacrifice for star lord and i mean that's just that is, those are the only two moments that come close, but I don't think they actually reached the existential experience of the of the first movies. We are Groot. I mean, that that just was, that's going to go down in comic book movie lore as a really sentimental moment. Yeah, I think in the future, that scene with Yondu sacrifice could produce tears for me. I think that is the scene that is most likely to produce tears for me in the future because Yondu is sort of the surprise standout in this movie. We'll get to this more in just a second when we talk characters specifically, but each character has an arc from the first film that is explored more deeply in this one, which I think is beautiful. It, it, it's not more of the same. It's taking little tidbits from here and here and here in volume one and making those the focus now in volume two, where volume one was about teaming up. Now we're back on a sort of individual focus but remembering that we're all family at the same time. And I, I really like that aspect of this movie. And I'm looking forward to rewatching and hopefully connecting more with the characters. I, I do think that volume one's drama and the, the more heartfelt moments stand out to me more. But I mean, that's just sort of the nature of the beast. It, it's a sequel and I'll, I'll hopefully warm up to it more as we go on. Do you have any standout scenes or anything that you want to focus on before we move on to characters? I, I don't know that I have any standout scenes beyond some of the ones that we've already mentioned that were really good other than just a, I, I try and I'm getting better at it watching these movies, understanding that they occur in a universe. And so my major criticisms would come when I watch this movie as something that is standalone. Like if I just discard everything else that's happened in the Marvel universe and I try and watch this movie and criticize it as just a standalone movie, there are portions of it that, that get a little slow and I'm wondering what are they doing? Why are they meandering around? But as you said, with, with some of the threads and the stories that we're going to discuss with characters, I mean, these are, <laughs> we've got five really good characters in the official guardians of the galaxy and more guardians get added in this movie and we're we're talking about like an Avengers level number of characters here that they're throwing together in two movies. It, it's pretty phenomenal that they did this as well. I mean, Gunn is to be praised for his direction of both films. It my entire praise would be that most of the scenes in Guardians of the Galaxy two, even if they're slow, they move the characters along 
while moving the story along. Neither the story nor the characters get left behind. And that that's pretty hard to do in a movie that's uh, paced the way this movie is. Yeah, let's go ahead and talk about those characters. Um, so I have at least my notes broken down into individual character relationships. So I've got Peter and Ego together, obviously. I've got Gamora and Nebula. I've got Yondu and Peter, as well as to a certain extent, Yondu and Rocket, as well as Rocket with the rest of the team as a whole. And then even Drax and Mantis. Yeah. I think they have a, a, a lot of really good things going on. So of those sort of team ups, which would you like to talk about first? I'd like to just get out of the way my my biggest complaint, which would be uh, Gamora and Nebula. Um, I felt like some of the scenes and some of the relationships there were uh, forced. I did not um, buy in completely to just the pacing of their relationship. I liked it. I liked where it was going. I actually did like how they did it, um, but it still felt a little speedy. It felt a little forced to the extent that they need character development for Gamora beside her relationship with Star-Lord, which we all knew what her relationship with Star-Lord was going to begin to look like. So they kind of tried to to do something outside of her relationship with Star-Lord. Um, they brought back Nebula, and I, I felt like it, it was the thinnest of all the relationships that was given like this import. Every character seemed to be given one, if not two, very important interactions and relationships. And that one felt the weakest of everyone in the movie to me. I agree with you, especially initially watching the movie. What's funny and what's sad is that Nebula is such a cool character and Karen Gillan is such a great actress. You and I are also both Doctor Who fans. And so we've seen what Karen Gillan can do and how capable she is. And unfortunately, her character here just isn't given enough, I don't think. Um, I, I applied Gunn's efforts to give her a little bit more this time around than she had in volume one. But you're right, that that was kind of sudden. We go from her on the Ravager ship saying that she wants to kill Gamora, like outright. This is what she, how she has wronged me in the past, and this is what I want to do against her as payback. And then when she arrives on the planet and she initially fails in that attempt, she tries again, but then she says, I just wanted a sister. And it is sort of, uh, pardon the pun, comes out of the blue. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was initially disappointed with it, thinking on it a little bit more throughout the day since I've seen it. It's warming up on me a little bit more, and I'd have to see it again to really truly form a, a whole opinion on that relationship specifically. Because the way I see it is family can get heated. And, you know, neither of them ends up killing the other. And in fact, both of them end up saving each other at different points in the film. And so I think that was what they did right. But I do think that it, it could have had a little bit more build up to the I just wanted a sister part of their relationship. Yeah, I think most of the fault actually goes on volume one. Had volume one been paced and spaced out a little bit differently where they had more interaction that kind of led us to this, the the main kind of transition scene of them kind of the background of them fighting against each other. Every time she loses, she gets replaced with machinery. Like that's some really good emotional material. And I felt like that had that been led up to better, that would have been an incredible 
relationship interaction transition, that would be one of the standouts of the Guardians movies. So I, I, I don't really blame the movie volume two for that. I blame a little bit of volume one for not making us feel like they really cared about each other or that there would be any kind of dynamic in the first place. I think you're right because Thanos was actually present in volume one in some capacity. And so it would have been interesting to explore Nebula's disdain for her father as well. Just like Gamora started showing how she obviously didn't care for Thanos in volume one as well. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that they didn't want both daughters to be, like copycatting each other, rejecting Thanos, but you know, it comes in, in volume two and you don't feel like there were any valuable connections as opposed to perhaps um, the relationship between Star-Lord and Yondu where you've got this kind of developing relationship between the two of them in the first movie that uh, completely blossoms. And I think it is probably the best, best interaction relationship in volume two, although it's not the most surprising. The most surprising is probably Rocket and Yondu um, because they have so much scene time together. Um, but the Star-Lord Yondu sequences, especially towards the end where Star-Lord is recognizing the father he didn't realize he had in Yondu, that is because of the valuable little nuggets that they place throughout the first volume the jokes about even in volume two, something that we hadn't seen in volume one where they discuss why he was kept around and it's because he's small and he's skinny. He can fit through things that other people can't for thieving. Um, that just, it feels right because of their interaction with each other in volume one. And you can't come away from their interaction in volume two without feeling that it's consistent with what we've seen. It's deep. It's got history um, and we almost, I, I almost wish that we could see kind of like a, either a TV show or something, a YouTube 15 minute clip of early Star Lord with Yondu series where they're exploring that relationship because it, it felt very real. Yeah. I think that is the best carried over character development from volume one because one, you don't expect it. I, I certainly didn't expect Yondu to be a prominent character in this movie like he was in Volume 1. Um, we saw in the first film that he obviously cares for Peter, even at the very end of the movie, when Peter has bamboozled him and has taken the Infinity Stone and hid it away. You you see Yondu sort of laughing because, hey, look at this little troll doll that he put in its place and all that, that darn kid. <laughs> They've got that kind of relationship with each other. And that continues on here. And we learn more about Yondu where in volume one, it was just about his relationship with Peter mostly. And here we learn, okay, he has this longstanding relationship with Peter's birth father ego, and he has done some pretty terrible things. He's been trafficking children to ego's planet and leading them to their deaths essentially. And finally he, he hangs on to Peter rather than turning him over. And he decides to make amends for his mistakes in the past by sacrificing himself and realizing that, you know, I think of this kid as my son. And that is such a difference from Kurt Russell's character, from Ego, his Star-Lord's actual father, that, that that contrast is just so good. And it adds so much to Yondu as a character. And it 
wow. I, like I said, if, if there, there's anything in the future that makes me cry in this movie, it's going to be Yondu. Oh, absolutely. There, I mean, there's a scene where they're prepping his funeral casket. I mean, it's not a real casket because they, they launch him through some kind of exhaust port and it gets burned up. But they're dropping his little trinkets down into his little bed thing with him. And that, that troll shows up again in that little sequence. And that that's one of those little reminders that it wasn't just that he was bamboozled and he thought it was funny. Like he kept it as a memento and that memento goes back with him when he, you know, gets incinerated. Um, it was, it was really good. It, it just was a good sequence of a film. Yes. And then you have the, the relationship between Peter and his birth father, ego played by Kurt Russell, who is a planet. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> what I like about this movie is, I keep trying to purposely refer to him as Peter because he's not so much Star-Lord in this movie. It really sort of explores the father-son relationship there. He is little Peter finally able to spend time with his dad, or at least that's what he's hoping for. And there, there's one scene uh, when he first gets to the planet and he he learns about his celestial powers because he's part God and he forms a ball. And him and his dad start playing catch. And it's like the most father-son thing of all time. And yes, it's silly, but it's also strangely endearing. Because like I said, that, that is the, a father-son thing. That is, like, I, I've played catch with my dad. My dad was my baseball coach when I was a kid. That that means a lot to me. And it clearly meant a lot in the movie, too, because this is their first time spending any sort of time together. And you're hoping in the moment that they're they're forming a an appropriate relationship a relationship that you would want with your own father. Yeah. I, I think it's one of those movies, one of those scenes in the movie that people are just going to think are cheesy until they stop and they're, they really think about it and they understand why do I think this cheesy? Well, it's because it's two grown men. It's like two grown men can still have emotional moments. And this was pretty much the best way to depict this emotional moment between Chris Pratt and, and Kurt Russell, who are, you know, both, well known to us for other things that they've participated in, in terms of movie and, and film. And so it's so out of character for what we would think they would do, but that's really an unfair thing to bring into this movie. It's really like you mentioned, it's really important to see an individual who has never met his father who doubts originally that this guy is his father. I thought that they did a really good job in the movie of, of bringing, bringing to the forefront that there was serious questioning about the legitimacy of this, even if it was short lived. And then that moment of just like kind of sparking a ball and crafting it and throwing it. Yeah, it's cheesy, but my goodness, the guy hasn't ever met his dad before. And he just, finally received the vindication or the validation that this was his dad. And for them to be tossing ball together was just like, that was just quintessential American classical father son interaction. And I, I just cheesy. It may be, but it was good. And then from there he becomes the villain, which I think is such a 
oh, well, it's different than anything Marvel has always done. Marvel has always, if there's always been a criticism for Marvel, it's been that their villains have been sort of flat, one-dimensional, uninspired. What better way to have a villain full of character development and give him an arc than to have him be sort of the hero at first. He's not the protagonist, but he is a positive relationship at the start of the movie. I am with my father. And then there's the the bombshell moment where he reveals that he has found a supposed purpose for himself in life. And because Peter's mother was distracting him from that purpose, he placed a brain tumor in there. He killed Peter's mother. And then from then on, that that relationship is destroyed. I think that is so powerful. And it gives new motivation for the hero to take down the villain. It gives the villain a new sort of level of of evil, essentially. I mean, he, he thinks he's being true to a purpose, but that's not a heroic thing to do in any sense of the word. That is dastardly. He has killed thousands, millions of children before Peter and... It, it it's just that one turn and all of a sudden we have this fascinating villain who we didn't really see coming. Yeah, I think I think a lot of the the detail here could be missed on a first watch. You, you kind of got to stop and think about it because you know, Marvel is definitely guilty of killing its villains too soon. In comic books, bad guys last for many volumes if not appear indestructible, they just never die. They're just constantly coming back. And Marvel has done itself a disservice. If there's any complaint I have about the Marvel cinematic universe in general, and that happens again in this movie where they, they kill the villain, but they definitely slid in some things that were unique. His goal, his purpose being to kind of repopulate the universe with himself hits a snatch because he really does truly fall in love and that lasts for just 15 to 30 seconds and it could be totally dismissed and lost if if you're not paying attention to it that he does the worst thing in this movie he does the worst thing because he truly experiences humanity for a small portion of time which probably makes him one of the better villains like you said, his whole level of evil is amplified by his genuine humanness in that moment. But it, it kind of comes and goes. I wish that there maybe had been a way to emphasize it a little bit better. I'm saying this having only watched the movie once, and I do feel like that scene stood out. But I also feel like it could be left behind in midst all of the other information that he's revealing about having, you know, multiple children that he has killed. And you're wondering, well, that's, that's all evil too, but that's not what really gets star Lord Peter Quill upset. That's not what gets him. It's his mom. And I think that maybe like just an extra simple five second slice back of her in the bed might have driven that point home more because I think it was a really good point that made him a better villain than the other villains in Marvel, even if he didn't survive the movie. Yeah, I think that is important to point out that he was killed off in one movie. And that's, you know, what's what's sort of great about Loki is that Loki has been a villain. He's been a sort of anti-hero. He's been a sort of semi-protagonist. And he's still around because he's such a great villain. And he, he can serve so many purposes within each film. So it's great that we still have him. We're going to get him in 
Thor Ragnarok coming up. It would have been nice to have Ego last a little bit longer. And I do think that maybe the, the, the process of the transition from good guy father to bad guy killer of my mother was a little quick. I liked that moment where you, you, I, I love what you said about the finding humanity and sort of eliminating the humanity from himself. That's fantastic. But I, I wish they could have maybe slowed that down, given just a little bit more of the whole father son dynamic and then made that turn. It, it did seem to happen just a little bit quickly, but Still, I think that he was very different from most Marvel villains. He's different, and I like that. I, different is good. Now, just real quick, I've got just a couple more characters to talk about. Groot is Groot. He he doesn't have a whole lot of like emotional growth or any kind of real story arc in this movie. It, most of that is given to Rocket this time around. And there's a couple scenes with Yondu and Rocket where Yondu says, you and I are just like each other. We both push people away. We put on fronts to disguise our loneliness and you and I both know that there are people out there that we care about and it's important that we take actions to show them that and that really comes to a head at the end of the movie when Rocket and well, when Rocket is trying to save everybody and trying to get them off the planet and he has to he, he makes the decision to sacrifice Peter because he can't lose more than one friend today and it, it it's just showing a little bit of humanity it's again just like just like with ego rocket finds that humanity within himself except he embraces it unlike ego and makes sacrifices and does everything he can to save as many people as he can yeah that's a small little sequence that again i think kind of will get brushed off and not appreciated because i think we've just kind of grown to expect that our heroes are not going to die in these movies. And I think that's something that everyone needs to wake up to. That's not going to last forever. <laughs> <laughs> no, we've got infinity war coming. These Marvel movies. I, I honestly think are going to start killing people and the, it kind of, you, you don't buy it, but he is leaving somebody and he's not leaving somebody because he's a heartless bastard. He's leaving them because he cares about the other people on his ship and he can't, He's finally acknowledging, I care about these people too much to risk one individual above all the others. And that is completely, completely out of scope in volume one. Like you, you couldn't have that scene in volume one about anybody. The only person who could have replicated that scene in volume one would have been Peter Quill for his Walkman. And, and so you, you've got this complete I'm not even sure any of the other characters have reached this level of friendship that Rocket achieves in this movie, um, which is kind of amazing given the dramatic developments of everyone involved. Even the We Are Groot scene at the end where he's saving everybody, he doesn't have to come to the ethical conundrum of sacrificing one person for everybody else. And Rocket kind of does it and it's natural. Like he you you buy him actually making that decision in this movie perhaps because of his hardness prior to his his softening in this film but that's another moment that i think people are going to wish they had paid attention to because when we start rolling into avengers 3 or even guardians 3 and some of the bigger story arcs are playing out and robert downey jr is on 
site and we've got Spider-Man flying around and we've got Cap coming back and we're all going to be excited about Cap teaming back up with Iron Man and these Guardians characters are going to be sitting right there. This is the emotional character framework that's going to uphold them. These scenes in this movie that I think are absolutely incredibly important to enjoy, even if they are slowing the movie down because they they set these guys up to participate in a much larger universe. The last character we haven't really touched on as much is Drax and the new character of Mantis, who is an empath. She can feel and in to a certain extent influence people's emotions. And that is such an inspired pairing because Drax is the big tough guy character. He is big, he's boisterous, he's loud, and we don't see much of a tender side from him. We don't really see any sort of tender side from him. And then there's a scene when he's looking out and he's telling Mantis about his family, who we remember from the first film was killed by Ronan. He's just talking. He's perfectly calm. He's not distraught or anything. He's just telling a story. And Mantis touches him and bursts into tears because of the immense sorrow and remorse that Jax is feeling in that moment. And that is just that's heartbreaking in a way you have this character who has such this hardened exterior and we're finally able to get a glimpse inside and it is tears and heartbreak. That was one of the more powerful scenes from the movie as well. I think, I think some of his interaction with Mantis kind of gets lost in the humor that they tried to bring. And so, you know, I, I commented that I thought some of the humor of Drax fell flat it might just be a personal thing, but that's definitely, especially with Mantis, where some of it felt forced. But that scene in particular, I mean, I have a hard time not comparing it to, I know we, we, we don't want to be talking about other Marvel scenes, but when Punisher is talking about his daughter, um, when he's tied to the tombstone in Daredevil Season 2, and he starts just bawling. And that's a, like an emotionally moving scene. But this kind of communicates that same emotional nature through Mantis. And only through Mantis could we get this insight into Drax, which is what I think most people are going to miss about her character. They're going to wonder, why is she here? What is she doing? Um, her foil to Drax and presenting us some of the things that he is and he experiences um, even as a little quip at the end about her being beautiful on the inside, all of these things reveal to us a bunch about Drax. And it's not necessarily character development as much as it is character revealing that we need about him. We need to see these things about him. He's not an emotionless person. I mean, he gets drunk in volume one and calls in the, you know, the enemy for a battle to the death and he's drunk and no one knows it's happening. But outside of that one drunken moment, we don't really get much emotion from him. And so his interaction with Mantis, I think, reminds us of what's going on inside and provides us with the necessary elements to see him as an emotional being. Even if he's not expressing that emotion to the people around him, he does have that emotion about his family. And we can expect for that to perhaps be built on in later movies. Agreed. And you know, there are plenty of other characters to talk about. There's um, Elizabeth Debicki's character, uh, Aisha, I believe. Yeah. And there's 
Taserface and there's Craglin and there's Sylvester Stallone's character who Yeah, he he's in the movie. Yeah, he's in a Marvel movie. <laughs> Go figure. Everybody can be in the Marvel universe now. Sean Gunn's character in this movie is um, you you're totally going to pass by and not care about him because he's not in the trailers, but he actually has a huge role in this movie as well. I mean, it's, it's incredible how many characters they, they really do develop in this. Yeah. And we'll talk about those characters more another time. I'm excited to see hopefully Sylvester Stallone having a little bit more of a prominent role in future films. I think he could be a good fit and then more Craglin maybe filling in for the role of Yondu and Aisha is setting up this. It's something from the comics. I know I I'm not as, maybe as comics versed as you are the whole Adam reveal in the end credits. Yeah. Uh, I know the name. I know it means something big and hopefully something big coming in the future. Yep. All that aside. Oh, do you want to go ahead and touch on it real quick? No, I was just going to say, I think it's pure conjecture at this point to, to know how it's going to play out. Um, Adam Warlock is a huge comic book individual, um, but they're introducing him in a completely different way. And so how it's going to play out, how Gunn has it playing out, how he might play into Avengers. I just want to sit back and enjoy it. Like, I don't, I don't even want to theorize about it. Just enjoy it. (laughs) Me too. I'm at that point as well. So we'll talk about, we'll get to those characters at some other time in another episode. Briefly on the music, I just want to point out that as much as the first film's soundtrack is classic, what's interesting about this one is there are two songs uh, that actually appear twice in the movie at different points. Um, One of those is The Chain by Fleetwood Mac, and then there's Brandy, You're a Fine Girl by Looking Glass. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is both of those actually play into the story thematically. If you pay attention to the lyrics, that's all I'm really going to say. I don't know if you have something to add on to that, but if you watch the movie again, pay attention to those songs placement in the film. Brandy is more obvious because we get Kurt Russell waxing poetically the lyrics of Brandy, you're a fine girl in this sort of Shatner-esque fashion. Mm -hmm. But then there's also the father and son song by Cat Stevens that plays during Peter's eulogy for Yondu. And that was that was perfect. I, I don't think we got that level of story song interaction in volume one that we did in volume two. And I think that is a cool way to take the soundtrack. You know, if I, l- I look at the track list for volume one and I know all of the songs except for one, I think there's a David Bowie song on there that I'm not super familiar with. 70s music is like my jam. I'm very familiar with 70s music, but for volume two, I only know like six out of the 14 songs. I know pretty much all the artists, but I just love the way that the lyrics and the song placement within the story itself had a purpose rather than just being fun songs that happened to fit the mood. Yeah. So I was born in 86 and I definitely didn't know as many of the songs this time around as in volume one. But like I said, my my brother-in-law downloaded the album and I had a conversation with my mom like the day before the movie came out. She was like, oh, this soundtrack is loaded with great songs. And so part of me thinks that the prominence of some of those songs is just lost on me and individuals who are younger than me. And so I'm excited that it seems like they stayed true to the roots of these really would be on a mixtape. Like anyone from that time period would really truly know these songs as being played on the radio. So that's, that's cool to me um, in terms of keeping up appearances and providing a really good soundtrack. Like even if you separate it from 
the emotional value, which you, you commented on, those two songs really dig in deep to the storyline. They provide context and actual development for the story as a soundtrack. That's really impressive. But even if you take that away, it provides you a good backdrop of these really are songs that would have been sung and valuable to his mom, provided to him. That's good work. Very, very well done. My public school district, when I was in middle high school, they have a radio station that's run by students that is 70s music, primarily with some 60s and 80s. And so I listened to that a lot growing up. And on this soundcheck, you've got Electric Light Orchestra, Sweet, Fleetwood Mac, Sam Cooke, Glenn Campbell, George Harrison, Looking Glass, Cheap Trick, Cat Stevens, Parliament, and even David Hasselhoff. <laughs> it's just, it's a perfect lineup. And whether I know all the songs or not, I'm looking forward to getting this soundtrack since I'm not as familiar with it, uh, the, the songs themselves. I'm looking forward to getting it and maybe enjoying it by itself a little bit more because it's new for me. So I, I appreciate Gunn doing that gun and team just real quick to touch on the score i haven't delved into the score separately from the film but thank goodness that they got tyler bates to come back because that's that's another problem in the marvel universe is that we don't have consistency in the music only films that have sequels composed by the same composers you've got henry jackman who composed the scores for captain america winter soldier and civil war whereas alan silvestri scored captain america first avenger and the avengers and thankfully, he's actually coming back for Infinity War, I believe. But other than that, we've had different composers for each of the Iron Man films. We've had different composers for all three of the Thor films. We've had different composers for Hulk. And it, it, it's just a hodgepodge. Even Ant-Man had a completely different composer than anybody else. So musically, it's nice to have some consistency with Bates coming back. In the very first minute of the, the movie, you hear the familiar theme from the first film. And mm -hmm. I think that is important just as much as a classic soundtrack. So I'm thankful that Bates was back to score. That's really hard, I think, because they're, they're trying to set a different tone in different movies, and so different music makes sense, but then you're also trying to... They're, they're in the process of trying to tie it all together, and I think um, some kind of uniformity, at least within series, is going to be important. As you've noted, they, they've begun doing that, and I think they're doing a great job. How all of it's going to get tied together in... The, the next Avengers movies and then how they're going to proceed as they split off more. Obviously Marvel is not making perfect films. They're making very exciting. I think they're very improved comic book films, but I think everyone agrees the music element is something that they can continue to improve on. Yeah. We had a little bit of a thing going for a while where Brian Tyler was very involved. He composed the scores for Iron Man three for Thor, the dark world for Avengers age of Ultron. But around Avengers Age of Ultron, I think he got into some sort of spat with the studios and Danny Elfman actually stepped in to compose about half of that score. And we haven't had Brian Tyler since. And Michael Giacchino has stepped in to score Doctor Strange and a new Marvel fanfare replacing Brian Tyler's only like year and a half year old score or uh, Marvel fanfare previous. So I don't know. Hopefully uh, Silvestri coming back can bring some of his familiar Captain America material and his Avengers main theme that he composed, and then hopefully bring in some of the themes that we've been hearing since Age of Ultron. Uh, we'll see. But anyways, um, last thing to really touch on is just any sort of big takeaways from the movie. We, we don't have time to go in depth, but for me, I think the, the focus of this 
well, let's look at the focus of the first movie. The first movie was about building a team and coming together. And here, I think the focus was realizing the importance of that team and the relationships between each other and discovering who your family is. And and beyond that, knowing that family isn't necessarily a blood connection. Peter meets his birth father in this movie, but he's not his dad. Yondu is his dad. Yondu is a guy who raised him, took care of him, taught him. And that is the father-son relationship in this movie that really matters at the end of the day. And beyond that, just again, the Guardians of the Galaxy are a family. That's what I walked away from with this movie. I think particularly in their splitting in the movie, you see the unification of the team in a way you don't see in the first movie where they're all kind of random people who are coming together. And now you see them kind of being split up, doing it intentionally and still coming back together and pulling everything off in the end, which we haven't discussed in any case, the, the ending of the movie, which I think was probably some of the, the lackluster portion of the the film in terms of its cheesiness and just kind of simplicity, comic book simplicity, but it, it, is the comic book simplicity that just kind of reinforces the family theme that you're talking about. That these are, this is a group of individuals that when they interact in the next movie, which we all expect to be Avengers three, they're not going to act as individual characters. They're going to act as the guardians of the galaxy. Um, and you kind of get that with um, Groot's little comment to Yondu, welcome to the guardians of the freaking galaxy. And they're thinking of themselves <laughs> as a family a family that when people sacrifice themselves, they join. And we haven't seen this in the Marvel Universe. And when they join the Avengers who have just been split up, the Guardians are a different beast. They are way tighter than the Avengers are. And I'm not sure that there's going to be intentional contrast of that. But when we see them come together, they're going to be a dysfunctional family. They are a dysfunctional family, but they're still a family. And I think that's going to provide a completely different dynamic to the individualistic elements that we've seen in the rest of the Avengers universe. This movie does a great job of just kind of reaffirming that we're not showing a movie about one person and it's not an Avengers movie of, of a bunch of different people coming together. This is, this is a family unit. This is a guardians of the galaxy movie and it does a great job of enforcing that. Yeah, there's a reason we didn't get a Star-Lord movie followed by a Gamora movie followed by a Rocket yeah. and Groot. They were established as the Guardians of the Galaxy. That is who they are. They have their separate identities, but what's more important about them versus the Avengers is that this is a team. This is us. And I, I think that would be really interesting if we got that contrast in Infinity War next year. So here's hoping. Yeah. all, all There's so much to be hoping for. <laughs> <laughs> We thought the original Avengers was going to be a big deal when they brought five different characters from five different movies together for the first time. And now here we are, and we've taken those characters, added even more within their films, and now we have this new set of characters, and they're going to be forming a giant super team. I, I am so excited. I, I think they could pull it off. I, I have high hopes. We'll see. Huge hopes. I have absolutely no idea how they're going to give everyone enough screen time <laughs> in two and a half hours, but... If anyone can do it right now, it's Marvel. And the Russo brothers. Yeah, and the Russo brothers. It might not be perfect, but it's going to be good. And if they're setting new standards to every film, that doesn't mean we have to like every film, but they're doing new things. And I think some of us need to go back and watch the 80s and 90s comic book movies and just realize we're very happy to have Guardians of the Galaxy 2 
um, in contrast to some of those 90s and 80s movies. Love them for what they're worth, but we, we've reached a whole new level of storytelling. And, and that's this movie, in my opinion, definitely exemplifies that. Yes, and so I'm excited for their role in Infinity War. And James Gunn has already said they're doing Guardians 3, and he's going to be returning to write and direct. Yes. And so I think there, there are just great things going on in the Guardians of the Galaxy universe and lots for us to be looking forward to and excited for. So I think we're done. End of the sixth bonus episode of Cinescope. Thanks for joining me tonight, Joshua, to talk about this. Thank you for having me. Contact for the show, facebook.com slash Cinescope Podcast and at Cinescope Pod on Twitter. Please remember to rate and review on iTunes. And just a quick reminder, if you leave a review or if you have already left a review on iTunes or if you share the podcast on Facebook or on Twitter and tag the show, uh, you will be entered for a giveaway. There are going to be three winners. Two of them will win one movie that we've talked about at some point up through episode 52. And one grand prize winner will win two movies that we've talked about. So look forward to that. Make sure to get yourself entered before you forget about it. Also, if you have feedback for me or if you have ideas, you can email at thecinescopepodcast at gmail.com. And if you're interested in co-hosting, if you have a movie that you'd like to talk about, let me know and we will squeeze you in. So, Joshua, where can people find you online? So they can find me online at torygazette.com. That's where I do most of my blogging. We have a Facebook site, facebook.com slash Tory Gazette. And then my personal Twitter account, which is at Ben U, B-E-N-N-U-W-N. I'm going to get it right this time. So I, I was practicing. Very good. All, that's, that's the best one. Cool. The best place to find me is at Chadadada on Twitter. And that is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. And then on facebook.com slash Chad.Hopkins. And all the show notes and all the contact information can be found at thecinescopepodcast.com. And that's all for now. Thank you, Joshua. It's been awesome having you on the show again. And uh, it's not the last people have heard from you yet. So we'll, we'll look forward to having you on again very soon. Yes, I'm very excited. Thank you, everyone, for listening to our sixth bonus episode. Our sixth bonus episode, I'm Chad Hopkins, this was Cinescope, and we'll be back later this week with episode 41. Have fun and celebrate movies. Sorry, I ran you really long.